Dry martini. Oui, monsieur. Wait. Three measures of Gordon's, one of vodka, half a measure of quinoa lily, shake it over rice, and then add a thin slice of lemon peel. Yes, sir. confession uh-huh i am kind of like quite legitimately excited by the idea of doing this again <laughs> oh god but with rachel wise oh oh see so no then it gets creepy though then it gets creepy because we're doing both of them yeah because we talk enough to him and her on this podcast. Yeah, I know, but that 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 will complete it. Will know? it though? Yeah. Or would we just we'll be the, whole, the weird dudes the who talk thing. about one married couple? Hey, only their professional work. No, that's not true. We talk about how blue his eyes are all the time. Yeah, I know, but we're not like finding out personal facts about him and obsessing over them. I guess. You know. I guess. This isn't an obsession. We're just we're just obsessing over our idealized version of him. <laughs> but think about it. You get both the mummy movies. You get any both. <laughs> you don't even mention the third one. We'll get both the mummy movies. We'll do the third one as a fun one on Patreon. We won't do the third one as a fun one on Patreon. I'm yeah. never watching it again. I watched it six months ago. Well, okay, well you're really trying to knock the wind out of this very early on. You get to go back and do chain reaction with Keanu Reeves. Yeah. She's in Constantine. She is in Constantine. About a boy. Constant Gardener. The Fountain, that weird one. The Dream House. Dream House, which we'll get to. Agora. (laughs) The Born Legacy. The Lobster. The favourite. Then we'll get to finish it off with Black Widow. And we won't be rushed because there'll be no deadline for it. And But if we're finishing it off with Black Widow, there'll be a deadline for it. And you know we can call it. What? Wise guys. Wise guys. <laughs> I don't like it. Wise guys. Yeah, I know. I it's like seamless. it. It's seamless. It's great. It's seamless. But I'm not I'm I'm just I'm just putting I'm just trademarking this. TM 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 to anyone who's listening. You're putting your toes in the water. I'm I'm just I'm just sketching out a new 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 territory. I'm okay. just saying it'd be a great filmography to work through. I would prefer it mm-hmm. if somebody else did the Rachel Weiss one at the same time we were doing this one and then when we got to Dreamhouse at the same time we, we would do a joint episode. That would make me Unbelievably okay. happy. Has right. somebody already done one? So what you would prefer is for the past to be different. Yeah, I would. Well. But it can't be, Sam, so I we can't we all, do a Rachel Weiss. We all feel that. I'm sorry, Rachel. I know you're listening. Yeah. But. Thanks for getting on the Patreon. We very much appreciate everything you've done for us thus far. Yeah. And not in a creepy, overly personal way. Not at all. 
This is a this is our profession. You can't be creepy about these guys. There's nothing to know. They have no social media presence. I I applaud this. Yeah, there's Great nothing, movie. and I think especially after listening to this, they will congratulate themselves on that choice. There's <laughs> there's not a lot to engage with. Yeah, but what what we do get to engage with is sometimes not fun, and I don't want to do that to Rachel. What in terms of their output? Well, in terms of other people's output that's involved them so you you don't want to come across something Rachel Wise has been in that isn't good and Uh then have to break that to her yeah on the podcast that she's listening to exactly okay but why don't we do this to Daniel wise guys (laughs) great name you great name I want to do it just for the name (laughs) it's just too elegant it is very well it's not as elegant, really, as Craigslist. I think it definitely is. But it's Craigslist. Yeah. and we're He's the... Britain's best actor, and, Daniel Craig. And we'd be the wise guys. <laughs> I still think it's creepy. Okay. Well, it just feels find a, creepy. Find a way to look past that. Isaac. No, find a way to look from the outside in and picture no. two... Australian guys. Yeah. Grown men. Grown men. With other stuff to do. Sitting in a room. Yep. Quite close to each other. But 1.5 meters apart. Talking about yeah. two different actors. Yep. Who happen just, to be married. Just happen to be married. That's going to come up in conversation a lot. Just their films. <laughs> I don't like it. Just it makes me feel weird just thinking about it. Okay, well, that's why I thought I should bring this up now to give you time to, you know, soften to the idea. To, okay, uh, yeah. Let's just let yourself get used to it. Just settle I in. will gladly talk about, about the two the mummy movies. movies. Yeah. The Lobster. No, just the two mummy movies. 360. The two mummy movies. Fred Claus. The two mummy movies. <laughs> Who was she in Fred Claus? Voice only, of only one way for you to find out. I could just Isaac. go watch watch Fred Claus. Yeah, you could, but only after watching about twenty five films in the lead up to it. God, Jesus, she's done more than Daniel, hasn't she? Uh, a few more, yeah. Oh God, yeah. You know, I realised we're watching, we're trying to watch everything Daniel Craig has been in, including all of his TV stuff, mm-hmm. and that's I think partly because. I wanted to do it that way because you get that sort of, there's a sense of pleasure from truly sort of completing something. Yeah, definitely. Gaining that sense of completion. But once we finish. Ultimately, there isn't anything to complete because whilst from the outside, yes, there is this body of work, which there is sort of a definitive limit to that either he's in something or he isn't. Mm. That is just a conglomeration of you know, a thousand, you know, choices and random events that ultimately lead to the things an actor is and isn't in over the years. So there's no actual significance to completing every aspect of this sort of assemblage because it's not like completing a Rubik's Cube where now it's complete and it all fits together. It's sort of like you just assembled a pile of random things that are... Like some somehow connected, but the only connection they have is Britain's best actor Daniel Craig. He's yeah. the glue that holds this pile together, and in some parts, he's not even allowed to be the glue. 
so and so then i like is that is that the lesson you know i think the lesson is completeness is always an illusion i think the lesson that we take away from here is if we ever do this for another actor or actress when we do yep we specifically choose someone who's done only movies or we choose somebody and then only do their movies yeah because we've learned we have learned the degree to which the degree to which we don't need to go into an amount of detail nothing can ever be fully completed <laughs> and even if you do the sense of accomplishment will be you see it could fleeting. be it could be fully completed if said actor or actress has passed or retired completely no but that's no but that's what i'm saying even if you on paper have completed it it's completed once we finish this it will be finished until Daniel makes another film. But to say it's being completed implies there's this sort of stable object we're interacting with that you can ultimately finish well, off. There is. It's his career as an actor. Yeah, but that's just that's a entirely sort of contingent. It's not it's his career as an created actor. Task. Picture picture a whiteboard and on it is only written the titles of the things he was in as an actor. Isaac, That's a list. That's a completed thing. Isaac, I have that Word document. Okay? I don't yeah, I know need you do. to imagine anything. That's a completed a Word document. Different cells are shaded different colors for various different when reasons. When we get down to No Time to Die, you won't be able to press Enter anymore on that Word document. It won't go anywhere because there's nothing for it to go. There is an episode of a TV series called Shockers, which I can't find. Thank fuck. I'm sorry, Daniel. When was it made? It's in the 90s. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm just saying, if we don't find that, why'd we... Why do we even bother? Why'd we bother saying? at all to, like, okay. if it was never going to be complete in the first place, <laughs> what's the point in... Well, what if No Time to Die never comes out? What if it doesn't? Because the way the world's going... What if we end up in one of those... Likely. ...infinite loops... Well, then we'll we'll have plenty of time. That's true. <laughs> we will have plenty yeah, of time to do this. we can watch different movies We can re- relax a lot. No, but then every time that it resets, all the episodes are gone. So we'd have to try and record them all. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Exceptional Thieves. This is a podcast where Isaac and I review and rewrite movies. I'm Sam. And I'm Isaac. And this is the latest episode of Craigslist, where... We are reviewing the entire filmography of Daniel Craig in the lead-up to No Time to Die uh, for no reason. Welcome back, Craigistadors. Oh, I uses the word straight up. Okay, and we, by straight up, I mean we're like 20 minutes in, but yeah, that's fine. Yeah, but still, straight up in terms of the, the, the intro and that. Yeah. Um, anyone out there who's been enjoying the podcast, if you want to keep track of everything that's going on with it, then you can connect with us on Twitter at ExceptionalPod. Or on Instagram at Exceptional Thieves. Or send us an email if you've got something really long with like lots of attachments you want to send. Also, even if it's really short, if it's literally two words in an email, send it. Still send it. Still yeah. counts. Still counts. Um, uh, also, if you're going to give us a, a review on iTunes, one word, two words, doesn't matter. Just do some punctuation. <laughs> just review us using only punctuation and numbers. I want you to use emoticons that just come up as those little blank squares because we don't have yes. emoticons on our phones. Yes, and then we'll just try and like 
work, guess what they works backwards to towards what the emoticons were. Yeah. Or just write out emoticon like smiley face with tears. Mm. Hashtag the word. Hashtag. Whatever, whatever you want. Mm. Just put, just put something in there. You know, you have creative control over what you email us. So. Yes, and the contents of your iTunes review. We don't know. We don't, and we can't until you send us something. So, if you want to make a case for why we should do the Rachel Wise filmography and that it's not weird, but see anyone who emails in. that in, I will know it's just a fake email address that you've set up and you sent won't us know emails. That. You I won't will. know that because because like like the. Yep. The ideogram will be entirely entirely different. Oh, you reckon you're going to write as a different person each I'll time? Get, yes, I'll... Yes, so I you're saying that you give, are sending all these emails in. I'll give in. myself multiple personality disorder and then swap <laughs> between them in order to create unrecognizable forms of writing. Yep. Or I'll just pay someone else and I'll give them like a vision of what to write, but mm-hmm. then they do it in their style. Like a ghost. I mean, no, I won't. Yeah. See. Today we are talking about... <laughs> Infamous. Infamous. The 2006, it's six or five, it changes. The strangely titled 2005 slash six biographical film of the life of Truman Capote. Capote. Yeah. Truman Capote. So, and it's the story of him writing his most famous book, In Cold Blood, about... The brutal murders of the Clutter family out in Kansas. Starring Toby Jones. Fantastic. Weirdly non-evil Toby Jones. It's very strange to see Toby Jones playing somebody who is the hero of the story. You never trust him. I'm never going to settle into trusting Toby Jones. Not after I've seen him as, mm. as like a TV screen. Yeah. 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 Or just... He's just he's just got a untrustworthy face. Well, I don't think he has an untrustworthy face. I think he does. Uh, and I think he would agree with that. You reckon he would agree? Yeah, I'm not saying he's untrustworthy as a person, but I think if you told him that, he wouldn't be like, I've no idea what you're talking about. He'd be like, yes, that does explain the vast majority of the roles I've received. I have been very typecast. Uh, the return of Toby Jones to Daniel Craig's filmography from Hotel Splendide. Yep. So, good to see those two back again. Good to see them able to do things after Hotel Splendide would have ruined several people's careers. Yes, amazing that they both uh, recovered from that film. And amazing that we have. (laughs) It's amazing that we recover from... And that's weird to say. Don't say that about Britain's best actor, Daniel Craig. (laughs) He is, though. Did you like this film? Yep. Yeah? Yeah. Did, have you seen Capote? I have not. Okay. Have you? I have seen Capote. I saw right. Capote ages ago, probably close to when it came out. Before we even start the app, mm. which film's better? Capote's better. Oh. Yeah. So with this movie, we have that <laughs> very fascinating situation where two movies are filmed and produced and released about the same thing at pretty much exactly the same like time. Like when Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis were both in Friends with Benefits at the same time. What? Ashton Kutcher made a movie called No Strings Attached at the same time as Mila Kutcher made a um, movie called No Friends with Benefits. Right, It's the okay. same film, sure. but they're in different films. Okay, right. We've got a... 
we got a, a a bug's life and ants situation. Exactly. Yeah. That's what this is. Okay. Except about a, a real person. Like, yeah, except about uh, horrifying Actual real life events. events. Yeah. And so at the same time this was released, there was a, a film that is called Capote starring Philip Seymour Hoffman, for which he got his Academy Award for Best Actor. For playing Truman Capote. For playing Tr- Truman Capote. So they just... Just basically left Toby Jones for for dead. That oh, that film just blew this one way out of the water. Like, oh, you got to feel bad for everyone involved in this because it came out and just no one gave a fuck about this movie <laughs> because because um, <laughs> Capote came out and just got nominated for everything and 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 Capote. It's been really interesting rewatching sort of both of them and just seeing why it's better and okay. and what it is that it manages to to get right i mean capote first of all i'm biased towards more because its style is just more the style of film i like which is more sort of bleak and moody mm. direct directed by bennett miller also director of moneyball and foxcatcher oh nice so you see where that's sort of coming in that sort of like oscar Beatty type of haunting movies about strong characters basically what was philip seymour hoffman's voice like uh very similar to what toby jones is doing toby jones and and to capote their performances are i mean okay we can start there so let's well this is a good way to compare stuff this is a film that we actually could be ranking quite well because if there is a really good film and then you can compare that as yeah. well as comparing it to being a good film in general. To be honest, to be honest, there's lots about this movie, Infamous, that I don't like. Okay, that ju- it just rubs me the wrong way. I just don't think it's hitting what is in what are the interesting parts of the story, and it's and it's muddying and losing the critical points. Um, but I think it still has a really great cast. The best part of the, of Infamous is Sandra Bullock as Harper Lee. I think so too. Like I think her performance is like Best Supporting Actor nomination, Oscar worthy. Yeah, because the amount she draws out of the lines that she's given, mm-hmm. and she's just performing in a way that you've never seen Sandra Bullock do before. At this so, point, definitely. So yeah. to be like, oh, acting. <laughs> look, look, <laughs> look at that acting this actor's doing. That's not what she normally sounds like. Um, and obviously you've got Daniel Craig as the as one of the murderers. Perry Smith. Smith. And you've got the little elf fella from The Hobbit, Lee Pace, as the other one. Richard Is Hickok. that Lee Pace? Yeah. That's Lee Pace. Jeez, seeing Lee Pace not do Lee Pace acting? That's all-American Lee Pace right there. That is a strange change. Mm. Jeff Daniels as the police officer in town, who is fine, but not... Just I don't like the way the character's done. And then Sigourney Weaver is in it for no reason at all. See, that was the part that got me is the back and forth to the New York high life that he lives. Yeah. Every single one of those people and his in- interactions with them was annoying. So annoying. 
and I just what I was so more I was much more interested in just learning about how this guy who's from a different world quite clearly yeah. goes to this small town and interviews these people yeah. about a horrific thing that took place. That yeah. was the film I was excited to to see and from what you've told me that is Capote like that's the other film is that. Well, it's interesting Capote kind of they kind of follow each other almost scene for scene the pacing's a little bit different the murderers turn up earlier in capote than in infamous okay infamous makes more of a deal of him like winning over the townspeople and things like that but infamous does yeah oh with the christmas scenes and stuff yeah and all of that but i watched an interview with the director of infamous douglas mcgrath and he was talking about how yes we knew this other movie was coming out at the same time but i was confident that ours was was it was, was going to be fine because I knew what I wanted to focus on with our movie, which was different to the other movie, and one and what they wanted to be focusing on was uh, the comedy and the um, and sort of like the glamour of the society life in New York, and I think it was just it's just really coming off the screen in this movie, a real deep affection and nostalgia for the way all the people in that society life talk and behave Mm. and to the point where there's so much of it in the movie that doesn't add up to anything or it's the same story every time you get a um section of film that's there it's the same scene four times where he has the same conversation with a different person for literally no reason yeah and See, I thought they were going to, by the end of the film, I thought they were going to show that he uses these conversations to influence his writing and how people will react to um, things that he says. And they only have that one scene where he says the same thing three times in three different ways and then Mm. chooses a line. And, like, I thought that was going to be more of a thing than him just doing it once. Yeah. the, the, The amount it cuts back to him in new york telling them about everything that's going on out in kansas like you don't need that much of it and they are all the same and it's got that sort of infuriating like repetition midnight in paris like music like it's the same refrain of music going on in the background of all the scenes there's one scene where they're learning how to do the twist dance and he has a moment of not really being able to engage in the moment because he's thinking about the case. Mm. But that's it. The rest of the time, he's able to do what he's always done in the high society life, yeah. despite everything he's experiencing out in Kansas. So I think that's a problem. And the problem you're having, the reason this film is difficult to write, and I think this is what Capote succeeds at, is your main character is someone who's obviously pretty unusual and has got a strange voice which is alienating as an audience but was obviously a very charismatic and funny and compelling person to be around and that's very difficult to write because to write it you need to think of funny compelling things for them to say and i don't think they really do that in this movie Mm. everything everything he says i was like oh I would still be so irritated by you. Every all of the little anecdotes that he uses in the scene where he's trying to get the, the townspeople to like him, mm. 
that got so grating. And I'm like, yeah, how do like, these people not understand that he's being a jerk to them? You're just shamelessly, superficially name dropping. Yeah. Whereas in Capote, he is, and it, it's, he's just. I don't want to just say that Philip Seymour Hoffman is a better actor. You can say that. I'm trying to break it down more to something to be more constructive. But I think <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman is able to put more nuance, energy and nuance into his performance okay. so that he, and there's a slightly more improvised feeling to the New York conversations that are happening. Because again, it ha- it rep- they replicate each other almost scene for scene, but the New York conversations mm. are... Like, he's funny to listen to. And watching that, you get why everyone is so compelled by His this guy. They're able to come up with some... They're able to come up with stuff for him to say and scenes for him to play out in. Like, you really buy that this guy is the centre of attention, the centre of the party, without having to cut to fake interviews from people at the time just telling you what the character was like, which yeah. is the other thing Infamous does. Yeah, I didn't like that either. Every time something would happen and then people would agree with a line that was spoken in the storyline. Mm. It's like the it's like they're like literally telling rather than showing. Yeah. And again, you would like you're only getting anything out of those interviews if you just are just eternally like tickled by people talking that way. You know, like he wouldn't have minded think, if she won the Pulitzer Prize. I don't think as long as he'd already now. won two. Like, yeah. that's not that good of a a line it's all just performative it's the whole thing feels like it's being done for the audience of this film we're watching not because it's the way they actually spoke yes Um, do you feel as though Toby Jones was chosen because he can speak like that and looks exactly like him Um, I look I don't think there's because I think I, it's a I think very Toby understandable Jones is, choice. Is very like he's like could be perfectly cast. Yeah, and it's a great performance in a way. Mm. But I think he's un, he's underserved by the direction and the pacing and the context that he's yeah. he's put into. I think into. if and there was script. nothing to compare him to, his performance would be fantastic. Yeah, like would have would have. You know what it might be. Because Philip, because Philip Seymour Hoffman, in a way, is an unusual casting choice. Because he's a big guy. He is. He's a big man with big energy. In Capote, he's probably at like his most handsome. Like he's slimmed down. Yeah. He's got a jawline. <laughs> nice. And <laughs> he's sort of dressed and shot in a way to make him look as small as possible. So he's sort of shorter than everyone around him. Yeah. So I think. When you've got the power of a Philip Seymour Hoffman condensed into that smaller character, that makes that makes it shine on screen a lot more. That's when you've just got like a legitimately very little dude. <laughs> then it's more difficult for him to take on the mantle of this, you know, tower- larger than life person. Yeah, and, and towering Nestle intellect within. essentially. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think also though that is. Getting somebody who's physically a lot bigger and making them seem small in a film, even in scenes of a film, is some of the best stuff 
like to show mm. someone who can be super towering and imposing, but to be able to show a person who you know to be that way as a meek and small character is, is one of the best things. Like Daniel Craig does it quite well in things like Road to Perdition, where he gets um, berated by his father and becomes the submissive, the character. submissive character. And it's just glorious to watch that. Yeah. Because he's so good at it. But you can't make Toby Jones smaller than Toby Jones is. You, you can't get any smaller. You won't be able to see him. No. Yeah. He won't be visible to the naked eye. <laughs> Maybe he does a lot more acting than we got to see. There's other, other differences I noticed where he's much... In Capote, he's much more sort of dressed down. Where he's okay. still dressed somewhat flamboyantly. But he's, but he's sort of dressing for the surrounds. To a degree. And I don't know to what degree this is... Like that film was more palatable to modern audience because maybe they had sort of sanitized or powered down who Capote really was. And maybe he did look like Toby Jones in Infamous. But I felt like it, everything he wears in Infamous is like actively like ugly and not Very nice much. to look at <laughs> yeah. whereas in capote he looks like sleek and glamorous in the stuff that he's wearing okay and i don't know is that intentional and infamous to be like no he just wore crazy stuff and he would refuse to compromise on that which is fine as well but i think as an audience member you connect to capote and capote more because because, because you can they, see how... They don't make as much of a thing out of that. Yeah. And maybe that's also real, because it could be that he dressed as flamboyantly as he liked mm. and would not budge on it, but his level of flamboyance could just be quite subdued. Maybe. And everyone's everyone who talks about that and rumours spread over 50-odd mm. years, maybe, and so yeah. we everyone just assumes he dressed like Toby Jones did. Yeah. But just oh, just like the scarfs and stuff he's got on in this so film, much, like, like so much. I mean, sure, you know, good on you. You're out there. You're pushing boundaries, but good <laughs> God, that looks horrible. Like his voice does get annoying. I don't know, mm. like how people could hold daily conversations with him. Yeah, and that is very much what he sounded like. Yeah, they, and. Yeah, I don't get as annoyed by in in Capote. I think again, I think in Capote and Toby Jones talks about this in an interview how he's trying to get into the voice to be able to make the voice three dimensional, to be able to modulate it, and so it's not to be able to do an impression at one level, but be able to go up and down and yeah. make it what because that's how it, you make it less annoying to the audience because yes. it's not just the same you have drone or the, the melody in a, in a, in a, in, a, in a voice. Yeah. yeah, and I think he does it to a certain degree. Philip Seymour Hoffman just can go further with that. I think. Philip Seymour Hoffman does that in a lot of things. The ups and downs of just speaking without changing what you're doing. He's a fantastic actor. Just a more richly articulated and nuanced performance. Mm. And yeah, there's no way really around that. Okay. Um, I think... That bombshell. Just ultimately... Toby Jones's character isn't that fun to watch or listen to, and it's it's a foundational aspect of his character that he was fun to watch and listen to. Yeah, 
And I said, so that's something I find it hard to look past. The, and the other difference they do, I think, in terms of the way the character's presented is in Capote, he just gets to have quiet moments. And it's a stylistic choice of the whole film and that um, Infamous has that tat, 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 tat music going the whole time and mm. it's just meant to have the more sort of effervescent, just rolling along momentum to it. Snappiness, yeah. Yeah, snappiness. Whereas Capote is more more sedate and like the whole opening of the movie is just a really long quiet scene of the girl discovering the bodies okay so it's just a shot of cornfield silence birds shot of house car pulls up and so it's just letting you settle into this world a lot more Mm. and And then it hits you with yeah and then there's and then you get shots of capote on his own just having little human moments, not doing his, you know, big Capote act all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think that helps you connect with him. There's one shot in, in Infamous where he's alone in the hotel room and he's just and he just sits down on the bed and is just sort of like trying to process what's going on. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's the only time I've actually gotten one of these moments of letting us actually see and engage with our main character in this way. So I think that's the other thing that, that marks it out. Okay. But I prefer Sandra Bullock's Harper Lee, even though she's also great in Capone. And do we prefer Britain's Best Actor Daniel Craig's turn as Perry Smith? Well, then you're getting into a really complex area because... You can't compare someone you can't to compare. Britain's Best Actor you Daniel can't, Craig. I mean, we're here for one reason and one reason only, and that is Britain's Best Actor Daniel Craig. And I mean, in, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be comparing a lot of people to Britain's Best Actor Daniel Craig. Because it's going to be Bond time. Oh, Bond! It's going to be time for Bond. We are so we. Are, oh, you can, you can taste it in the wind. You it can, is. You can, I feel it in the water. Palpable. I taste. I feel it in my fingers. I feel it in my toes. Yeah. <laughs> Bond is all around me. I guess it is a little bit at the moment. I've been He's everywhere I go. Um, <laughs> in my own mind. The, obviously, the core of this of these two movies is the relationship between Capote and Perry Smith. Yes. One of the murderers. And it's done very differently. Okay. And I think Capote dwells more on the moral compromises and the, the moral conflicts within Capote as a character. And portrays Perry Smith in a slightly less... He portrays them both less sympathetically, you could say. I think Infamous presents Perry Smith as someone who it's very understandable that you could connect with and sympathize with. And you're sad that he's going to get killed. And Capote is someone who's... Oh, he's obviously just a lovely guy who's suffered a lot, who kind of deserves to be able to write this book he's trying to write whereas in capote they're both it that's why capote feels a little bit more mature to me in that neither of these characters are presented as just like good or sympathetic characters like there's a point in capote where i mean spoilers for capote go watch it (laughs) where Spoilers for both films. Yeah. Capote kind of just loses his patience with Perry Smith because Perry Smith won't talk about the night of the murder. Yeah. And 
like all of the like in aff- Capote, in Capote, yeah. like and in Infamous, all of the affection and like romance that develops between them, that's not in Capote. They have he loses patience with Perry Smith, and Perry Smith is talking to him. You know how he would use like you know five five dollar words and try to demonstrate how articulate he was all the time, mm-hmm. and Capote sort of c- c- cuts cuts that off. Is like. There's nothing I want to hear from you and there's nothing else I want to talk to you about. I'm here for one reason and that's the murders that happened. There's nothing you can explain to me. You can't... There's no topic in the world that you can illuminate for me. What we're doing here is absurd. And there's like, do you know what absurd means, Perry? Like making fun of him? Like it makes him a much sort of darker whilst making him much more likable than other scenes because mm. he's genuinely funny and interesting, it it shade, it puts in all these other shades of grey in terms of what he was doing there. Whereas, in a way, Infamous, I think, kind of boils it down to a simpler story of he sees someone who, you know, As he the- could have been in a different life and then ultimately they both have kind of a romantic connection to the other one. And I, I well, I don't think it even needs to be the romantic connection. They just have a connection, a deep connection to the other one. Yeah. Well, and it gets pretty romantic. Well, there is by the where end. it gets also very, which we need to talk sp- about. We will, we'll get there. So I probably think the other one's a better film. But there are moments in this film that might be handled in a more appropriate way. I'd have liked to have seen a better handled version of the, of the infamous version of Perry Smith, the Daniel Craig version. Okay. Because they show you a lot about Perry Smith in this that you don't get in Capote. And I like getting all of that and delving into all that side of things more and his complexity and his backstory but I don't think it's served by the overall context of this movie where I think it's it's just, its pacing is sort of jumpy and jagged. And so what it's trying to do doesn't really come together. Do you want to do the plot? Sure. So Gwyneth Paltrow can't sing. Note number one. It was very strange that that was Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah, the first scene is Gwyneth Paltrow singing. And it's also very strange that she didn't really have anything to do with the rest of it. She's never in it again, just a cameo. Yeah. But Gwyneth Paltrow had already been the lead actress in Sylvia. Well, she was the lead actress in the Oscar-winning Shakespeare in Love in 1998. It was indeed. It's old news. She's been Why around. is she the introduction singer well, sorry, the poor introduction singer. Yeah, why didn't they get a singer? Like, I'm sorry, Gwyneth, you're very talented, but... You have the, the ability to get a singer. This The point of this opening scene is this singer commands this room so powerfully that when she stops singing, the, the silence falls across the entire room. And, I mean... I think the, the her stop singing is everyone... It's a karaoke joint, and she's just forgotten the words, and they're like... <laughs> ready to laugh at her but then she comes in with some emotion and like going back to it i guess the lyrics she's singing are somewhat significant where she's like now i i sit and wonder night and day why i love you still talking about sort of a guy who's left her yep which is kind of foreshadowing 
I guess, of the relationship in he ends up getting with Kind Perry. of a way, but... But very soon after that, there's the first point in the movie that I think gets sort of bungled. Like, the fact he's sort of... It sort of comes up in conversation. He's like, oh, there was um, a murder down in Kansas. Did you hear about that? Like, yeah. while they're dancing, I think it might be. Yes, it is. So we don't get to see him... Discover this. this and be like, oh... I should go. This is something I, I want to do. He's or, uh, he, At the start of the film, he's already aware of it and mm. thinking about it, and we just get to come in halfway through his thought. It's another one of those movies where I feel like the filmmakers assume we know the whole story, and so they forget the need to hit the important plot points in a way that makes the story clear and yeah. makes the, what's significant about it the story It doesn't treat clear. the story as though it could be fictional. Yeah. It treats the story as this is history. Everybody knows mm, history. Like blah, blah, blah. In cold blood, etc. How fun were all these high society guys in New York? Listen to the way they talk. <laughs> she gets her servants to iron her money. Crazy. That is fucking crazy. Oh, I don't know. That's not even, like, a nice thing. Hey, Isaac, you're making jobs. Okay? You're stimulating the economy. Okay? If By having all... somebody iron your money for the day well what do you want to have all crinkled up notes and that you have a wallet yeah i know put it in your wallet no it's it's no, it's no good you don't understand they're all rolled up from all the cocaine they were doing the night before so <laughs> no, they need to no, okay, okay. they really need to be ironed well, then out put it in your cigarette box <laughs> you just pull out a <laughs> cigarette that that's a five <laughs> like pass it on <laughs> sorry um, a five this um, is a hundy yeah yeah, they're not doing $5. Sorry, what's that? Oh, you wanted $15? Well, here's 100 Keep the change. <laughs> they're that kind of people. Yeah. Wankers. Yeah, kind of. Like, they're not... There's not one point in the whole thing where any of the high society people are shown to be, like, sympathetic characters. There's no humanity to I any of them. I love the fact that um, Sandra Bullock... So, Harper Lee is not included in the high society people. Yeah. And she does that on purpose. But she gets it. I love that. Yeah. They're still friends and she's the super normal person. This story is surely meant to be largely about the colliding of different worlds. Yeah. There's the colliding between high society in New York and rural Kansas. And there's the colliding between the wholesome life of the townspeople of Kansas and the sort of brutal outlaw life that the murderers were leading in and around the time when they did this murder. Like their criminal life impacting the world, the domestic life of the clutters. Mm -hmm. And then there's also the difference between Nell and Truman. Um, and that their friendship is there, but they are vastly different people. Yeah, yeah, and between and and I guess him and his uh, partner, who whose name I forget, who like he sort of Dunphy. No, am I making that up? No, it is Dunphy. It is Dunphy. Jack Dunphy nailed it. Um, yeah, but that nothing comes of that because all the high society people in New York they just get to keep being whoever they are. I'm assuming the just... re the reality of these horrifying murders doesn't make the, any of them have to rethink anything. They also have to go, oh my God, oh my Lord. And Somebody then, died. And then move on. Somebody who could have been my servant died. You don't see Truman doubt or question anything about his society life that he's come from. And it doesn't, it's not 
and I haven't read the book, so I don't know how much any of this comes out in the book, but the colliding of the criminal world with the world of the Kansas town doesn't See, at the start of the film, I think it was built up to mean something more, where he's like, I want to show the impact on the town. The impact on the town. But and it, I thought, oh, this could be cool. Like, you'd be able to see, like, actual townsfolk and how it's affected them, and they don't show that at all. Maybe the mm. book does, and he said that because the book does that. Yeah. And I think the book does do that. But again, we haven't read the book, filmmakers. We have not, we have not read In Cold Blood. So then it's, yeah. Because the murder books I read are fictional. Because <laughs> he, 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 he gets Harper Lee and he goes to Kansas, and yeah, he spends... So long, sort of getting to know the the people. It's set up for the first sort of forty five minutes of the movie that at least yeah this is what we're doing. That this is about Truman Capote in rural America, getting to know these people and getting to know how they react to this murder. But then that's just dropped as soon as the murderers turn up. One thing I do like about I'd say the film as a whole is that he starts off wanting the story to end with them not finding the murderers because it would make his his book better. Mm. And then the massive change between that and now he meets them mm. and it's a completely different angle to go through because he yeah. develops a consistent relationship with with one of them. Yeah. You could, you could draw that out with more. With both of them, really. With both of them, but more so with one. Mm-hmm. It really, you could draw that out more as well if you just I like the th- I I guess it's just the old thing of I think this movie is a bit not really clear on what its themes are. Yeah, it's clear on what its subject matter is, which is Truman Capote, but that's not enough. You can't just put Truman Capote on screen and expect a, a good film to happen. I think the other theme you could have would, which is something that's like right there on the table with when you're telling the story of someone inventing the literary form of the nonfiction novel, as he describes it, is our attempts to narrativize life and our need to turn life into stories in order to understand it. Mm. So what we're watching is someone try to take this horrifying sort of un, un, incomprehensible event and turn it into one kind of story, but then that attempt gets disrupted and you could see the townsfolk trying to come up with stories about why this has happened. And then he has to try to incorporate the killers into his story. Mm. And then the fact that the killers are kind of likable and sympathetic characters would change it, the story again. Yeah, it kind of makes it impossible to turn into a story because like, all our stories are about villains. If you show that, that's like, that, like yeah, that show would him, be captivating, showing how showing him what struggle. he's trying to write keeps changing every time he tries to write it because he'll talk to somebody else hmm. and that'll just completely change his point of view. Yeah. Well, he, he doesn't seem to find it particularly hard to write this at any point. No, it, there's no point where it shows that it's really affecting him. Maybe hmm. when they go to the house. We don't see him come up with the idea of what he's going to do. He tells Nell um, or Harper Lee in one scene that, I'm going to do this this nonfiction novel thing, and they have an argument about it. Yeah, sure. But we don't know where he got that from. And, yeah, there's the one scene where he goes out to the house and is shown looking around the house. But then that scene just ends, and we don't know... We don't see what impact it had on him. You don't see any emotional drain that this could have had on Yeah, him. Yeah, because... I, th- I think like, that is a problem with the film, is that it's not... 
It doesn't let you in. Mm. It gives you the glossy feel of this is dialogue, this is witty dialogue, this is when we've made a film that works, it tells the story that we need to tell. Yeah. And it does, it's fine, but it doesn't give you any emotional depth. Even even when you get the down moments later on where you have like really quiet and intense moments with DC, mm. there's still a glaze over all of it where it's supposed to, it's, it seems prettier than it would have been. There is a glaze, and I think part of that glaze comes from pacing. Like there's missing scenes. I think there's big, when, and we'll get to it with all of the Daniel Craig stuff, but there's big meaty scenes between Capote and Perry, which I think, but are all separated out and kind of jaggedly connected. And I think some of them need to be brought together into just one sort of in one long intense scene and then have some scenes outside of the prison, back with the townsfolk, back with Foxy, the police officer or something. You just needed more townsfolk scenes in general. So you, so we have a sense of his journey through this relationship rather than just this sort of scene after scene in the prison where, where we never get to draw breath between these dramatically different emotions the characters are having in each one. I think personally and probably other people viewing it would have agreed that if it was more scenes going between the prison and the townsfolk and the prison and the different townsfolk or just staying in the town instead of going between the prison, like once you've met the townsfolk once, it goes between the prison and New York, back and forth in New York or somewhere else in the world, and he just travels that way, which I feel as though just takes you out of the story. But if you stayed in the town for the whole thing, mm. and like you can mention he goes to New York because he did, but you don't need it to tell the story that you're telling. Yeah, he goes between prison, meets a few more townspeople, and like that would then st- muddy up the waters a lot more. So you'd be getting different points of view all the time, and you can see his struggle to understand them each see and getting to see more of the impact on the townspeople as time goes by as we as we recover from this as like the appeals happen for the prisoners the fact that there's not going to be any resolution Mm -hmm. to this for years the scene after they were captured in uh, at christmas at jeff daniel's house yeah that was a cool scene where everyone's just quiet and truman says um yeah he makes that comment about being upset that he's not allowed to come and meet them but then yeah. he just says congratulations and like that's a cool moment where you can see that this is weighed upon Jeff Daniels a lot and his mm. wife is just like, this is really good. This is a massive relief off of you. Yeah. Go do your thing. And there's and there's a line, now you can finally get some sleep as though it's clearly been affecting him. But Truman's not even seen any of that at all. Yeah. And I would have liked to have seen Truman at least realize how affecting this is to the to the town yeah i think the the relationship between him and the police chief i guess is quite sort of detective yeah it's the the guy in charge of the case is quite sort of tv's jeff touched, daniels t- yeah uh was it newsrooms <laughs> jeff daniels is quite um Who's sort not? of touching yeah and sort of heartwarming to watch evolve but also I didn't like it that much because there's the conflict of the worlds, Mm. but neither of the worlds have to change at all in order for them to find common ground. Truman just has to be his most Truman-y self. Name drop a whole bunch of names. Yeah, and the townsfolk are just like, (laughs) 
shit all right cool cool and then and then it's all good and sure it may be real life that is what happened but there's just not much of a uh, story there like there's not a compelling reason for that to now yeah. change like uh, the one the one time there is conflict when he turns up and he says i don't care if you catch the guy or not i'm just here for the story it's like well i do care obviously because he went to my church or whatever yeah next scene truman's like i'm i just want to say sorry for what i said before i got too big for my britches and as you can tell i got new britches and jeff daniel goes ah that's all right don't worry about it water under the bridge blah 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 and it just Let's it go. So Truman just has to say, I'm sorry, and has no just consequences his, yeah. for the mistakes he's made in the course of this complex thing they're trying to do. And I think one thing that also sort of let me down was they build up this relationship between Truman and Jeff Daniels. And after the arrest, you don't see Jeff Daniels again hmm. until the hanging. Like, he's just not in it for yeah. some reason. He would have been there. There would have been more conversations to have. Yeah. like that- And that was, that was an interesting point of view. Like, Jeff Daniels' point of view of these horrific men have done something yeah. terrible in my community. Can we just execute them as quick as possible, please? Exactly. So not we fucking can, four years. So we can all move on, you know? Yeah. Like, whether or not those conversations happened, just have him have conversations with Jeff Daniels in the intermediary time, like as another perspective on his evolving relationship with the killers, you know? Yes. Like we liked each other. We were genuinely friends before we met these guys. Mm. Now I've got a connection to the killers whilst I'm trying to write this book. That complicates our friendship. How do you feel about that? Blah, blah, blah. Because then you could see Jeff Daniels grow to hate Truman. Yeah, like how to become severely dislike him because of what he's doing right now. Yeah, because how could how how could he not at the end from his perspective? Exactly. This is a man who has basically assisted in prolonging the suffering of your town. Yeah, of the town. Yeah. Yeah. So that's yeah. So that's kind of fucked up. Kind of lost. It just they just it kind of gets lost in its own fantasia about the relationship between Capote and Perry Smith. So. We should get to a couple of things I want to call out that we just before we move past them. One of the probably one of the best lines is when Harper Lee is talking about um, when they were first going out to Kansas. She tells the story about uh, his parents not coming to the pageant because they were like childhood friends. Mm. And she says, "When he asked me to come out to Kansas, that was deep calling out to deep." Good line, Sandra Bullock. Oh, she just. Oh, I could listen to her talk in this movie I all day. I watch a Harper Lee film, actually. Yeah. To Kill a Mockingbird is still great when you watch it again. I, I'm sure there's. I don't know what the story of her life is. I don't know much about it, but I'm sure there's one in there. And just get Sandra Bullock to do it. And also, then, when he's over their house for Christmas and they arm wrestle outside, it is so clearly summer. <laughs> like, I'm sorry, it's. Christmas in Kansas, like you need a snow plow there at that time. <laughs> Their breath isn't even misting. They're out on the front but porch. But they're wearing doing, jumpers. Yeah, they're wearing jumpers. Sure, I'm just saying <laughs> stuff like that. Like just film indoors. Like whenever it's when it's a beautiful sunny day, don't try and pretend it's Christmas in Kansas. <laughs> um, and they get when when they they when when they do talk to some of the townspeople, they're talking to like one of the farm a farmer who went into the house like on the day of. And he's talking about how we saw blood up on the banisters and stuff. And yeah. like, it's good. It's really good dialogue, but it's shot from like 
10 feet away, they're all in darkness. You don't see any of this impacting on Capote in any way. It could have been a very emotional moment. But it, it, it takes you out of that by putting your point of view... So far away from yeah, and at the, the back action. of this dark barn. So there's just the purpose of each scene wasn't very clear. Like, what was the purpose of that? As guests showing us townsfolk, but it doesn't really feel like the impact on the townsfolk because we're all the way out on this farm, and we're not seeing Truman or Harper learn anything really through this that they then use later on in the case. So it's just just a little bit aimless. Some of some of these things. Um, but then they arrest the killers at like minute 42. And I think that's where the proper development in the film goes away. Well, that's when the second film starts. You know? Yeah, it's, it, it's, it changes from this is a movie about him coming to a town to write a book mm. to a and movie we've... about a guy talking to some killers. Yeah. And then going to talk to his friends. And then go back and to spreading talk to the all killers. their rumors to each other about each other's. Yeah, and, and coming just, back to talk to the killers, and just immediately breaking the confidence of all his friends with his other friends. I'm not sure what we're meant to think. About and we that. don't see any like comeuppance from that. Consequences of that. It's just, no. it's just like, by the way, he was a shiftless liar, kind <laughs> of. <laughs> like okay, I guess. <laughs> I'm not sure what to do with that aspect of our protagonist, but okay. Because he doesn't lie to the killers. No. Well, maybe he does. He does in Capote. Okay, cool. In Capote, again, it's so weird how much they are scene for scene. Perry <laughs> Smith gets upset with him when he finds, because he reads in the newspaper about the title in Cold Blood. And Capote says, That's not the title. I was just doing a public reading. They, the editors wanted a title, they made one up, and that's what they called it. I that's, have, see, that's what a normal person would have said at that point. In I time. haven't thought of a title yet, mm. but I think that just makes it makes their relationship so much more complex that he does just flat out lie to him about that. But like he would have, yeah, but in this, he's more sort of, I don't know, like measly. And I, th- I think even at that point, he is the weak person in their relationship. There's no point in there where yeah. he sort of holds things above Perry. Yeah, and I don't understand why he would be the weak one. Actually, yeah, that is the big difference between these two movies. In Capote, he is in control of that relationship the whole time. It affects him deeply mm. in a way that he can't really control. But he makes sure that he's in control. But Perry never gets the upper hand, whereas in this, very literally in multiple ways, <laughs> Perry gets the upper hand. <laughs> because Well, it is... Britain's best actor, Daniel Craig. So you're never going to win in a fight against Britain's <laughs> best actor, Daniel Craig. So what do you, so Daniel Craig turns up, he's got brown hair and brown contact lenses, which is a big deal. It was. It, which is very unsettling to look at. It um, Is it really Britain's best actor, Daniel Craig, with brown eyes? <laughs> I mean, I think it's a cool way to give yourself a handicap at the start of your film. Yeah. Like you're going into this golf match already. Having yeah. taken eight shots at the start. Yeah, without, without without those eyes, you're just one of Britain's actors. Exactly. And what do you doing th- a good American accent in this film. Great accent, no problem with it at all. Gotten a lot better since Lyle Croft. <laughs> acknowledge that. What do you think about the casting of Daniel Craig in this role? I don't think Daniel Craig is right for this role. <sighs> Ah, 
Why? I think Daniel Craig is right as an actor for maybe the other role. So why do you think he's not? I don't right know. For this role? I just there is something just off, isn't there? It just doesn't feel like it should be Daniel Craig. We're just we're we're fifteen percent off in some direction. Yeah, it feels like it should be fucking Tom Hardy before Daniel Craig. Mm, I know, like, cause, like the casting is very understandable. Very much. Like I get it. There's just something about its execution. <laughs> I get it. I get like, it. Like guys. when I realized, <laughs> having seen Capote, when I realized who he was playing in this movie, I was mm-hmm. like, "Oh yeah, definitely, great idea." Okay, he's cool. good for that. Even though the car- the actor in Capote is is very different, um, he's he's more he's like he's just he's just sort of smaller and more kind of withdrawn. Like Weasley, and he looks like he's someone who could have killed a family. He does look more like someone who could. have Daniel killed Daniel Craig a family. really doesn't look like someone who could have killed a family. He looks so nice. Yeah, but- in. But, Road to Perdition, Daniel Craig looks like someone who could have killed a family. <laughs> but in this, he, he just looks like Daniel Craig with black hair and brown eyes. Maybe that's mm. also part, partly why it's it works a little bit is because he looks so normal. And that's what Truman could have seen. Is just this normal guy. He doesn't look like he could be a horrific killer. Well, I think he, he's appropriate for this role because he is someone who is physically imposing but check clearly can it can demonstrate a very vulnerable and slash artistic side check which is something he brings to a lot of his roles it's a foundation it's a foundational aspect of his bond as someone who's got a sort of brutalist style but you know can do sad eyes <laughs> you know <laughs> Like he can think he's got sort of sad puppy dog face as well. So he's someone who like you can believe he shotgunned a family, but you don't immediately write him off as a villain when you look at him. No. Like I think that's how he gets this role. I think but, Lee Pace is great. Yeah. In his casting. Now that I know it's Lee Pace as well, that mm-hmm. makes it even better because I love that it is so different than anything I've seen Lee Pace do. Yeah. Because it, it is very, very juvenile. Yeah. Like. Yeah. And like sort of. Very realistically grubby. juvenile. Mm. And I thought that was really good. When we get to it, the hanging is. We'll get there. Yeah. I mean, we'll get to it. The, so this is the other moment of the movie that gets sort of thrown away, which is the fact that the fact that the killers don't seem evil should be weird and a surprise. Yeah. You build it up to at least some degree that Truman is expecting to meet, you know, vicious killers. And he meets these two dudes who are these sort of complex seemingly in some ways approachable people that you can just talk to like that's the and he's allowed to do that yeah and that's the other collision in the storyline of not between worlds but people's picture of what people who would do this are like and what the world of people who end up doing that sort of crime might actually be like you know like our our desire to ethically and morally categorize people conflicting with the complexity of the three-dimensional world they actually come from 
you know, which I is think... which is drawn out, but really should have been hit at this moment when he meets them for the first time. But they just sort of bubble onto screen like mid sentence almost, and then we're, yeah. and then we're off to the races, and this is who they are. Blah blah blah. I and think again, that's it. Assuming that we already know what they're going to be like. To do it well, I think the way you would have done it is to have the prison seem imposing that they're in, so that he has to go through several levels of prison and then just get like scarier and more uncomfortable. Yeah. This is a place where scary people are put, mm. and then he comes into this room, and he meets just two of average Joes just mm. hanging out. And like you hear people yelling at him when he's walking in, like the jeering that always happens. And he answers them. But yeah, he just has quips for everyone. He's not at all uncomfortable about being really even put on the back foot about it and maybe in real life truman wasn't but for the purposes of our story captivating it would be good to yeah build up that moment so (laughs) i mean again and again i haven't read the book but i get the impression that part of why it made an impact was the way in which it humanized the perpetrators of these crimes Mm. so we need to watch truman realize that these people are humanizable. Yeah, it would have been nicer, and maybe Capote does this, to see Truman come in already with the villain aspect ready. He's going to write the villain's perspective right now. These are the bad guys. Time to meet the bad guys. Instead of coming yeah. in all skipping in and being, Hi, Dorothy. Yeah. It doesn't do Welcome it... Welcome to Oz. It, yeah. it doesn't do it that... Uh, sort of explicitly but it's probably hinted at more because it's much quieter Mm. the scenes that they happen first of all he talks to them through the bars for much longer he's not in the room with them immediately and there's just little thing where you just you don't see him prejudging them but you watch him sort of neutrally contemplating them the first time he sees perry smith he's just kind of looking at him and because he's not he's not expecting to see him that first time and then he just sees him and perry smith asks him asks does ask first thing he says is do you have, do you have any aspirin so my legs are really hurting and you see that just like spark something off in capote's head and then he gets called off into in, into the other room and so then the next time he sees him he brings aspirin and so they've he's in me already sort of establishing this little relationship so it's just much more subtle than Probably what we're sketching out, but also the <laughs> it, it's, it's 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 that really sort of like skilled filmmaking where you're using pauses and it's not just all on the page; it's pauses use, and looks. You and, use the silence to actually say something. Yeah, and like blocking and looks and things like that to l- let you f- feel think with the character as they think to the point that they they've got to get to. Mm. Whereas I think this is very much all, it's all on the page, sort of what you're working with. Red rag to a bull for Daniel Craig, this character, though. He would have he snapped would have had the this up. Best in that. time. As soon as you even whispered a hint of this, like, yes, definitely. An ambiguous, conflicted character. Do I get to yell and go up really close to the other person's face while I'm yelling? Could I am there. Imagine Daniel Craig in Capote as this character. What, as Capote? No. <laughs> In the movie Capote as Perry Smith. Uh, yeah, but I, th- I do think the person they've cast is is better in that movie. For if you for the if, role, maybe? if they if yeah for that for that role, if he if he was doing it line for line the same, then 
No, but if you were doing a more fleshed out Perry Smith like they do in Infamous, I don't know. He would just there's something the thing he made him opposite Philip Seymour Hoffman would look weird. You can't compare Daniel Craig. You have to you have to compare him. That's how you know he's the best. There are other bonds. Oh yeah, we're going really, to do a bunch. Are of there comparing. other bonds? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. There are, <laughs> but there are though. But, but are there though? Some of them aren't, but some <laughs> of them are. Um. So he's he gets and involved initially. Perry doesn't want a bar of him. No. The other guy's happy to talk to him about his book. Mm. Um. But then. Perry is basically just not n- not interested. He says, "I'm I'm not a I'm not a character. I'm a real life person and things like that." He's just not that that interested in engaging. And then he talks to a very Daniel Craig. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's no. a person. Yes, yeah, that's the kind of character he's interested in playing. Exactly. Harper Lee says, "You got to find out what he wants." Yep. And he basically figures out that what he wants is what every other character in this movie wants, which is stories about famous people he's met. For some reason. And they, there's these things that come up in all the accounts of this murder and of the book that Perry Smith did, like putting the pillow under the boy's head before they shot him, like communicating in all these ways that he probably wasn't intending to kill them or in a weird way, didn't want to hurt them up until the point where they decided yeah. they ultimately were going to shoot him. Um, and then, and then this is where we get this sort of seesawing, jagged relationship between him and between Truman and Perry Smith. So they arm wrestle, you know, he starts telling them these stories. The other thing that gets sort of muddled over is what exactly he's asking perry smith to do for him because i infer he's asking him to tell him everything about his life and everything about the murders but he doesn't actually explicitly say that at any point and so then there's a certain point where they start talking about tennessee williams and whatever yeah but then he keeps as the scenes go it's like he's with they keep withdrawing and moving towards each other but i don't know what other than think they're withdrawing from. It's like it's showing you the tap dance and the chess game that they're playing, but without telling you that it's a chess game that they're playing. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. You just needed him to lay out more explicitly what it is he wants him yeah. to him to, to do. I think for it him. it's another thing where it treats it as though you know what the characters are doing and going through. Yeah. Is that you know the story and you know that he's come to talk to this guy for this reason because you've read this book. Yeah. And then he uh, Truman goes back to New York and he's sending Perry... First of all, he sends him a bunch of pornography and he says, oh, I'm not really into that. And then he sends him and he's, these books and he's sort of discovering that Perry is sort of articulate, enjoys reading mm. and knows a lot about different authors and things like that. In remaking the film, that's probably the only time I would have him go back to New York is when he sends the pornography and then when he sends the books instead. You probably just need the one sequence of him going back to New York, show that he can't 
re-enter his society life seamlessly and that this case is now... Show that he tries. Yeah. But you the... give him a night where he goes to a dinner and he's trying to do his regular conversations that you got to see a little bit of at the start. Yeah. But you see him like, yeah, this doesn't really mean as much to me at the moment. Yeah, that that's what you need. It's not just that it's weighing on his mind, but, oh, what I'm doing here means something different to me now. Yeah. And I, I see it differently. I've got something else I need to concentrate on at the moment. I can come back to this high society life yeah once i've done what i need to do yeah elsewhere and articulate it beyond just i have a personal connection to this individual man but also the issues of this case and are more town. important and the exactly. town are and more are. are more important than all this shit i spend my i fritter away my days gossiping about <laughs> at all these places in new york because that and you don't want to you don't know how much you can read into his life but that will help set up his decline in his later years after this case that he's never that he's never the same again this undermined a certain pleasure and meaning he gained from his life in new york that he can never regain after connecting to these more sort of elemental uh you know aspects of of this case yeah Instead, every, he's, he has so much fun in New York every time he goes back. It's I know. brilliant, it, and he's just but gossiping. But Sigourney it's not. Weaver's husband's having an affair. Why? Why is that important? Why do they tell us all of that? Why is it Sigourney Weaver? Who is Sigourney Weaver? And don't tell me, because <laughs> I'm. it's such a long scene. I'm Googling it. Well, I can tell you if I want this here. <laughs> She's Babe Paley. Also, just really quick off topic. Yep. Why is the movie called Infamous? Inf- infamous? Yeah. Uh, well, I guess... Is that about the killers? Is it about Truman Capote? T? Is it about the well, book? Well, because yeah, it could be Because he's actual either. famous. Like, he's proper famous. So is the book. So are all the people he talks about. Yeah. Well, I guess Infamous is sort of famous for kind of the wrong reasons. Yep. Which I guess the killers are... But also, once they accept the fact that they were a little bit famous for a time, they're famous and no longer infamous. Yeah, who knows? I don't you know. know? I think Capote... It's not, it's not a terrible title. Capote is a better title for the film. Another thing that film got right. <laughs> <laughs> um, then he goes back out to Kansas and he, and he decides he's got to try to get through to Perry somehow. And then this is the beginning of this sequence of just scenes in the prison with no scenes in between them where they're all very emotionally intense. And I have I have a problem with some of them. Hit me, Sam. Not physically, <laughs> but I want to know. <laughs> the first one is he tells Perry about his mother committing suicide, which is true. And then Perry... He, Daniel Craig, look. Does some great Daniel Craig. I love him to death. And literally. I, and I blame this on the... No, not literally. Okay. <laughs> Can I make this less creepy, Isaac? <laughs> okay, we're never going to get to do wise guys if you keep yep. you keep up that kind of shit. Daniel, we love you. As a, All about that personal touch. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Isaac, we're never going to get to go to the No Time to Die premiere if we've got restraining orders out. That is true. I okay. take that back, Daniel. I don't want to touch you. Social distancing. Yes. 
I want to stand exactly 1.5 meters. We, we won't even get that close, okay? We'll do three to four meters. We at will all times. definitely be too embarrassed to be near you. Yeah. Like, I'm gonna be, if you approach us, I'm probably going to get scared. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, when you approach us, Hi. I will be afraid. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I, I think I'd just say sorry. Sorry, <laughs> is it okay? How would you feel if we did Wise Guys? <laughs> no, because when we go to the No Time to Die premiere and he's there, I'm assuming he hasn't listened to the podcast by this point. I'm going to assume he has. Just and I want to pose to, pose to him out. the existence of a podcast. Like, hey, Daniel, I'll just, just see. Let just me ask you a question. It. What would you think? Just blue sky thinking. If two completely random dudes, yeah, lovely guys though, lovely guys, lovely guys, um, just did a podcast on. What if we what what if what if we, we what if, what if they <laughs> what if they watched everything, like and we and done. and we're talking like the lot, not that they could ever be complete because that is an illusion <laughs> in all aspects of life. <laughs> What, would what you, would you uh, say to those guys? On a scale of zero to weirded out, where would you... Pulls out his phone, opens up his secret Instagram account, <laughs> shows that the only thing he follows <laughs> is our podcast and Rachel Wise. <laughs> and then it's and just... And one fan account of his own. And then <laughs> we just fist bump. No one will ever believe you. And he <laughs> leaves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. He just leans in and whispers, "Great keys to door." <laughs> he leans in and goes, "You can stop now." And we're like, "Yeah, we have. This is this is the last movie." I'll do big. I'll do. Well, no, we can't though because we have to do this one. It's just coming out now. But after this, do you want to be on this one? Are you saying you're not going to be in any more films? Because we will have to do those now forever until we yeah, either you die or we die. <laughs> oh, I don't want to picture a world without him. Yeah. Us is fine. I don't give a shit about that. Oh, yeah. But whichever one of us dies, though, if he's still, if one of us dies before him, the other one has to sadly carry on. <laughs> but asking questions. So what did you think? Oh, that's right. <laughs> what do you, what do you think? Mop with picture of Isaac drawn on it. <laughs> Uh. The tally just becomes weirdly one-sided And all of the films just get put at the top Every <laughs> single one <laughs> Okay Back to the story What were you saying? These are these weird so And Daniel As I said I love him to death Physically but, And I blame this mo- <laughs> I blame this mostly on I think this is a directing problem And a scripting and pacing problem Where his character really only gets to go between two gears it's, and there's a very low gear of tell me more about Tennessee Williams. And then there's, I'm going to murder you. And I'm going, and even though like there's no guards around at any point in this prison. So he says, so, and so it's when, so weird when he says that. my mother committed suicide, he like is choking him up against the wall immediately doing classic Daniel Craig scruff of the neck face. Like he gets into that position with his other actor in so many of his films. <laughs> Because he's good at it. He is. Ve- it's a great go-to move. Um, but comes out of nowhere for this character, and doesn't have any flow-on effect. And it also doesn't simmer slowly. 
it's, no, it's immediately and, turned off. It's on and off. So mm. these two gears, you, there's there should be three gears between them, but we just snap back and forth between yeah, that's them. That's not healthy for your clutch. No. It, your gearbox it, is going to blow if you keep doing that. Yeah. You, you can't go from first to reverse straight away. You can't? No. Oh, I used to do that a lot. No, you can do that. You can? Okay, you can't good. go from first to fifth, though. Oh, really? Yeah. That that will that will break your car. Oh yeah, oh yeah. First or fifth would be bad. Yeah, you can go, you can go down though, can't you? Just clutch coast down. Technically, but you should put it into those gears as you go through them. Oh, what a nerd! I know. I would just clutch the whole way. I don't. Or you shit. just slam your brakes on at every set of lights and just change to first because you've stopped. <laughs> yeah, and then take off again. All that. All I do. I've only ever changed gears upwards. I've been on the move for 10 years. I've got one of those Fast and the Furious gearboxes. <laughs> it doesn't end. <laughs> I don't get any faster. It just keeps going. I'm up to 15. <laughs> Speed on would have broke off miles back. <laughs> I'm scared to hit the NOS. I might go into space. <laughs> um, <laughs> Does this car float? Won't need to. <laughs> So switches on, switches off. The story off. of his of his mother committing suicide, yep. which is like well acted, sure, whatever. But then, in the then it just cuts to the next scene, which is him coming back, and Daniel Craig is furious because the guy next door heard the whole. Conversation. Oh yeah, he said something. And so then Truman probably takes him into the corner and does like a this visual, could be our safe spot, a visualization corner, and things are getting like pretty like. Creepy because uh, the blowing he, on his face. Yeah, like, <laughs> like if you want to, de- they develop a romance between these two characters, and that's one thing. But first of all, th- the power dynamic between them isn't addressed in the story. I don't think it's addressed at all because I don't think there's one point where there's a contention for it. It's in each scene. Someone else is in charge. Well, I think in like because in this one, in this scene, it starts with it starts with Perry being like, "I don't want to talk," and then Capote's in charge. He sort of takes him into the corner, wins him back over, and and he tells him to imagine Mexico and like imagine a safe place, which is Mexico, and imagine the wind and it's like blowing on his face. It's just like that's weird it's, it's a weird it's a weird thing to do in any in any relationship let that's alone how, that's how you spread coronavirus let alone one with like a known murderer yeah who you're already you inside ha- his cell who you have like power over as the f- famous rich author just visiting him in prison as well like that's something that i think needs to be Addressed. Like, this is a fascinating relationship that has a thousand aspects to it that deserves to have a movie made out of it. But we don't... There's something kind of impoverished in the way it's in the way it's shown, where there's something kind of oversimplified in the way its development is, is depicted, I think. Anyway, then Daniel starts telling the story of his life. And we yeah. have what looks some kind of like rather cheap and hurried looking flashbacks of how of his him growing up with his parents who are alcoholics and horrible to him and his dad abandoned him and and then in that they're still they're cutting back to him telling the people in New York about it. 
For no reason. Why did that need to be? You're just just, hearing about his life. That could have been one scene. Every time you go back to New York, you're just draining energy and power out of the fact that we're in this remote Kansas location. In a tiny prison cell in this remote Kansas location. Yes, I was okay. Truman isn't really just in that prison cell. He's also in New York this whole time. Yeah. And then, and there are some like sort of emotional lines there. So their relationship is developing. Perry says, "No one's ever treated me this way." And and Truman says, "It's because I I I do it because I I respect you," which is nice. But I, I'm not sure why he respects him. I don't understand why you'd empathise with him. Yeah, well, I don't think he's a character you're supposed to be able to respect. Yeah, respect is like an interesting choice of words. Yeah, but then for mm-hmm. someone who is supposed to choose words carefully. Yeah. And then the next scene, so there's no intermediary scene, just cut to prison again next day. Yeah. And Capote goes in, and Perry has found out that the title of the book is In Cold Blood and is so upset by this that he physically assaults Truman so severely that he convinces him that he's about to rape him in the corner of his prison cell. Yes. Because that's how your title made me feel. Very intense scene. No real issue with the performance of it per se. No. My issue with it is really, as far as I can tell, this is entirely made up. Yeah? Like, this is just something the filmmakers came up with. Mm, I don't like that. It's not in the book. There's no like record of it. The record of what happened in this relationship is murky. There's Capote's account of it. There's conflicting accounts from cops and other people that were around at the time. But this is such a dramatic choice that really shapes what you should be thinking about both these characters and their relationship with each other. Very much so. That is kind of an ins- crazy thing to put in. If that's not if that didn't actually happen, that's not something you should put in if you're trying to make your characters come across as though they've seemed very relatable and normal. That's not something you put in. Yeah. If it's just added to make him seem, to make him easily go from the flat to zero to 60 again. Yeah. That's zero to 100 straight away. Yeah, but but that's the thing. And we've just been at 100. We don't need to go to 100 again in this. It's such a bizarre choice to make this up. Like, these are real people (laughs) that really had some kind of important relationship with each other. I didn't know that was made up. That sucks. So that kind that, of turns me off it. Yeah. To be honest. No, definitely. If it's a fictional movie, there's nothing inherently wrong with it. No. But again, after this attempted rape scene, Truman is shown like crying in the car afterwards for like two seconds and it fades to black. Mm-hmm. And then we just move on. Yeah, it comes back. It pretty much Boom. makes out with him pretty, pretty quickly after that. Yeah, we're back in the prison. And now Perry is going to tell him about the night of the murder. Like, well, he explains to him the double meaning of in cold blood. Yeah. And that somehow puts all that to rest. Like, it would make more sense for him to explain that double meaning in the previous scene. 
to, As to avoid to getting and, killed by this person. Yeah, to try and diffuse what's going on. But in, instead, they let all that drain out, and then he does it in the next scene. Yeah. And his depiction of the night of the events is essentially Lee Pace's character. The reason the murders finally happen is because Hickok, the other murderer, accuses him of being gay, essentially. And that sort of pushes Perry Smith over the edge, and that's why he starts shotgunning people. Yeah. I'm not sure if there's any basis for that or not, but it's kind of building on this kind of... The fact that he's been suppressing these sort of... Yeah, the sort of troubled sexuality of yeah. Perry Smith, which is something they really build out in this movie, is not really addressed in Capote at all. No. And again, I'm not sure how much of this is in the book or there's other record of. But, you know, they've got a real thesis statement they're building to here. That ultimately... And it's it's just kind of confusing. And again, disconnected from any other theme the movie's trying to link towards. Because now, okay, is is the theme homosexuality at this point in history? Which is another, like... Which is a completely different take on the whole thing. Completely different take. Perfectly valid angle given... Because Capote's gay and he's had to navigate life in that in that way as well. Another similarity between him and this murderer, sure, I guess, but but it doesn't have to be. You need a strong historical record to base that on, and that's also not at all borne out by any of the townsfolk stuff, any of the other relationships, any of the New York society stuff, anything. At any all. of the stuff that is possibly more captivating to watch. Any of the stuff that yeah, the, like the more like obvious stuff you would pick up and run with about this story yeah. and stuff that you can do factually correctly yeah mm, yeah yeah um the scene of them doing the murders is good yeah the 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 actual murder scene is sort very of well, well, well prolonged done. shot of them arguing and then them shooting them sort of it all it all happens in the one shot mm. quite effectively like that's all good it is pretty good and seeing perry talk through his justification of like this film still retains the fascinating core of Perry Smith's character that the being delicate he, with the people and up he until didn't the point. really want to do it. Yeah, even and, up to the point where it's taking place, he's like, I, and the the line after this, like after he shot two people already, and he goes, "I could have stopped him." The other guy after, like he says that after he's confessed and after he's described himself killing two people. Hmm. He said, I could have stopped him from killing them, but I didn't. As though he still thinks Hickok is more of a villain than he is. Yeah, in his mind. In his mind, what he did, he just did. And because Hickok was going to assault the girl yeah. and he stopped him from doing that, that's his sort of consolation for himself that I at least I stopped that from happening. Which is still fucked up. Yeah, the, but just the... The things people will tell themselves to... To make them feel better. To generate a... so And, and that's why he looks like a normal person to us to in his presentation. Because, and that, and that, that plays out into a broader theme in an interesting way because he's behaving towards, say, Truman like a normal person because he's got a story in his head of how he's a good person. Yeah. And that's how so many people get through the world. That's how so much evil gets done in less like acute ways but 
Like everyone's got a story. Nobody uh, knows that they're the bad guy. Yeah, everyone's got a story about themselves about why what they're doing is fine. Yeah, and that's what's fascinating about these characters. That if you can do it about you know horrific murders, what else? What other normal people, seemingly normal people, are walking around the world capable or even enacting terrible evil? But it's not salient because they've developed a story about it. Which is why the theme of narrativization would be a good theme for this movie and you showed Truman struggle to try to boil it down into a story. That would work. Would. That would work. That would work. That would work. Then it moves to... Um, Truman goes away for a while, doesn't he? Well, he, he, he goes back to... Goes back, but he stays what, away from the prison for quite a while. He goes back to New York and he immediately tells them everything Perry told him about the murders. And that is confusing because when he goes back and immediately tells them everything he told him, that makes it feel really exploitative, what he's done, yeah. by by eliciting all of this from Perry. But it, I wasn't sure if as an audience member you're meant to think that's exploitative or if it's just being like, <laughs> Truman, you know what I mean? How much fun is New York society? But it is exploitative. It felt, well... One of I the don't core think it just questions feels like it. It's just like that's a shitty thing to do. I think you could really. There's like a clear argument to be made in both ways. Like that's what's so interesting about it in Cold Blood. Like you can really argue he exploited them, and you could really argue that he told their stories in a fairly in a yeah. fair way. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. But the, it's just not a question. This film engages with that much. I don't think. Um, Perry writes him every day. Yeah, well, I think just I think the, the last scene is when they just make out for a while. Yeah, and he says punishment is hoping for years there's someone for you, and after finding him, you can't have him. So it just gets really explicitly sort of just romantic towards the end, which is like sure, but strange given the attempted rape. That yeah. You need to show how Truman looks past that to continue to engage in what is essentially a romantic relationship through these prison visits later on. Yeah. And not just have it be that he's only there to, pardon the pun, squeeze more juice out of the conversation. Yeah. Because it, it, like... In one squeeze more in, Yeah, it's not a pun, is it? It's more just an unfortunate phrasing. <laughs> the in one scene he's being explicitly exploitative, and another scene he's being like viciously assaulted and being desperately upset, and in another scene he's just still really attached to this guy. Like he's you don't see one of the problems here is you don't see in these scenes what Truman is getting out of the relationship. Yeah, you he see says, what Daniel Craig gets out of some of it. Yeah, because he's being recognised and explicitly states, "This is what I'm doing." And yeah. you, Daniel Craig, is able to show, "Sweet, I'm being, my story is being told." Like, yeah, I will tell finally, you my story. People are going to know about it. That's mm, awesome. He's getting recognition by participating in a piece of art that he's always dreamed about participating in. Yeah, like at the end, Capote says, "I don't have to," and it's a good line. I don't have to act like a little wind-up toy, toy when I'm with you. Yes, um, but, be, but see, he doesn't show that he hates doing that at all in the film. You never see him be dissatisfied by acting as a little wind-up toy in everyone else. You no. don't see him not act that way with Daniel Craig, except maybe in the monologue about his mum. And 
so you don't get to see a, we never see a different side of Truman when he's with Perry. No, yeah, we just see get we get really? to see him be scared. Yeah, we see him be scared. We don't get to see him be scared anywhere else. And like the mother monologue is kind of a different side, but that is sort of just explicitly framed as I'm doing this so you'll tell me stuff about you. Yes. So that's not like a, re- a like a revelatory aspect of this relationship he's in. Then it goes back to New York. Back to New York. And there's a big gap while they're waiting for the execution. Perry writes him, it's stated that they're given two letters a week. And every week, Perry writes both of them to Truman. Mm. Which, if that's true... Yeah, Jesus. Jesus, that's a lot of letters. Yeah, and this is a... Yeah, and this is a really interesting aspect of the like, the real story that he can't move on until either these people he now cares about get executed. <laughs> yeah, and imagine if, if the verdict came back where they didn't go for the death penalty and that they're just life in prison... And then for the rest of Truman's life, yeah. this guy in prison in Kansas is just writing him twice mm. a week. And, and he... then the letters, because he doesn't reply, just get progressively more aggressive <laughs> continuously. Yeah. Well, yeah. if you weren't in love with him and wanted to see him all the time and you were just, and you were just trying to use him for a book, then you'd be like, oh, Jesus You just Christ. constantly get reminded. Yeah. But that's the thing. If they got life in prison, end of the story. But if they yeah. might get executed, he has to keep going until... That happens. The The scene of the execution where he's asked to go and he doesn't really know if he wants to go, I think that's pretty well done. Yeah, it's pretty sort of nuanced and humane and three-dimensional. Yeah. Three the way they portray the, each dude walking up to the gallows and that mm. holding their heads high, saying their last words, whatever it is. I, and then mm. the moments of once the hood gets put on, and you hear the the heavy breathing. That is so I, well done. I hate execution scenes. Yeah, when they're like that and they just show you the whole thing, like it's I I cannot handle it. Like it's just the, it's m- not one nice. of the most upsetting things. Like it's watching things like that that make me be against the death penalty. <laughs> yeah, like it's and it's the subject of. I forget the, the the name of it, but there's a there's a George Orwell essay about it where he writes about the execution he witnessed, and how there's something about just the witnessing of it just makes you realise oh, we we shouldn't be doing this. Like regardless, this can't ever be the That's right thing to right do. That's not the right way to go about it. Like if we if we do this, we haven't got rid of a murderer. We've just replaced one murderer with a room full. Because now we've all participated in it. I think it's a Batman quote. It goes, if you kill a murderer, the number of murderers stays the same. Mm. But in that saying, if you kill 99 murderers, the number of murderers is now one in that that (laughs) list. Good point. So So the problem is you just haven't killed enough. So like, but yeah, I don't. I I I agree. It's hard to watch execution scenes, especially when they're done very, very, uh, like tastefully, if that's a word you could use for it. Like very realistically. Like this shows the whimpering in the hood, hmm. and that's the hard part. Once you saw, you see those tiny moments of humanity in yeah. 
and that's the hard Just thing to watch. To watch the realization of what's what's actually about to happen. Yeah. Exactly, and that's just not something that you want to look at. No, and the fact that people used to go along to watch them, like it's there's something it's it's worse than like like murder as a crime of passion in a weird way, like. And I'm not like making an argument for anything here, but it's just like an interesting sort of discussion in ethics of. Um, it's actually a quote I was coming back to from. Remember the Ides of March with George Clooney <laughs> and Ryan Gosling. With George Clooney. Yeah, yes, like I do. A, a political movie, and he's running for president, and he's against the death penalty. And the interviewer is like, um, uh, "So you're against the death penalty?" He's like, "That's right." He's like, okay, so what would you do if someone murdered your wife? It's like, I would find that person and I would kill them. But you don't think the state should do that. It's like, no, because the state needs to be better than the individual. So it's like, my ethics for myself is if someone murders my wife, I'll kill that person. But I don't think the state should be... The state shouldn't be emotional. No. Yeah. That's an ethics for me in that individual situation, but that doesn't apply to at a, at a state level. Like, there's something worse about it being so cold... And yeah. procedural. Government mandated like, murder. Okay, I guess we'll go do this now. Let's go over to the murder place and do it. Like, it's worse. Yeah. Somehow. Oh, and I think also the the waiting on death row and then the lead up to is a horrific kind of torture that you put a person under. Yeah. And like punishment of life in prison is pretty fucked up. Like that's it's still, still that's, bad. That's life in prison. You don't get freedom anymore. Mm. And that's just pretty good punishment. Man, we're really whipping through the issues on this podcast these days, aren't we? <laughs> Eventually, we'll it's find okay. something that's a little more nonchalant. Next week is Casino Royale, <laughs> and it's going to be good. These execution scenes were good. I don't really have any comments. I do on. like the fact that it's um, handled well, that you don't get to see Perry's last words. Like, they don't show you them. Truman leaves. And then Truman says, yeah, these were his last words. He said this. So you just get Truman's point of view on it. I like he, that Truman says something and then Jeff Daniels just cuts him off and says, yeah, he didn't say anything. Truman wanted him to apologize because it would be a great ending to the story, basically. Yeah. kind of says that. And then he tells people that he did, which is just a lie as far as the text of the film is concerned. Mm-hmm. And... Jeff Daniels, I mean, or he didn't say anything at the end. Um, I thought that was a cool way of doing that. I think Philip Seymour Hoffman's acting of the scene, the goodbye scene before they go out to the gallows Mm. is more powerful. Like he's just, it's just this kind of raw emotion. Do they have the gallows scene in Capiti? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, pretty much the whole thing. But he doesn't run out at the end. He just he just watches it all. Fuck that. Which I think which I think he did. I don't think he ran out at the end. But I'm pretty sure that Perry Smith kissing him on the cheek and saying "Adios, amigo" did happen. Okay. But he doesn't do that in Capote. So these little differences I find really interesting. Adios, amigo. Imagine it. You know, that's fucked up. Pretty good as a as as last words. Not bad as like, last words, actually. Yeah. Adios, amigo. What are your last words going to be, Sam? 
See, I don't want to think about it. Ah, uh, bullets. My only weakness. <laughs> <laughs> that sort of thing. Or like, what? And then that's it. I'm sorry, what did you say? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what happens now? <laughs> what happens if I press this button? Am I standing on the right spot? <laughs> I might have left the iron on. I'll be, I'll be seeing you soon. Um, Let me just you're next. <laughs> my some of, one of one of my favorite last lines is in um, Ballad of Buster Scruggs, James Franco, when they're all in a line. First time, first time. I mean, if no one, if people listening haven't seen that, that will mean nothing to you. But watch. Well, memes exist. That is a meme. Yeah, I know, but you won't. Yeah, but if you've seen memes, you usually know where they come from. And even if you don't, you've commented, what is this from? And someone has commented and told you it's from this movie. Sure. That's how meme culture works, man. Get with the times. No, it doesn't. People know the source material. The meme only takes off if a sufficient number of the people viewing the meme know what it's referring to. And the James Franco meme saying first time definitely took off in 2018 when that movie happened yeah which means lots of people had seen it yeah my comment was anyone listening who hasn't seen it <laughs> for fuck's sake will not understand this meme yeah but i'm i'm assuming that the general populace once a meme becomes popular enough yeah will know where that meme came from and i completely agree with you i yeah. was saying to anyone who hasn't seen it yes <laughs> you won't understand the meme that's fine Continue. Phil Manns publishes the book. He publishes the book. And we sort of end on yet another moving, beautifully delivered monologue by Sandra Bullock about how America isn't a place where small things survive. And when you, to to write something or to, to create something, you have to, put so much of yourself into it that like a part of you have to die or something like that and mm, then yeah. after you've put it out there'll come the inevitable and very American question what's next and and that I think is also a great monologue about herself yeah the fact that Harper Lee yeah I, published I, one book somehow there's just so much more richness in Harper Lee's dialogue into in dialogue and interviews than in all the rest of this movie as far as I can yeah. tell and I wonder how much of that is her performance as well, that she's just being able to read and draw so much out of these lines <laughs> that everyone else is just sort of speaking into the wind. Although she is kind of also meant to be the character with the most gravitas as well. Yeah. Um, well, she's Sandra Bullock. And has. it's talking about the fact that he wasn't able to do anything next. He never published another book after this one. And to the same extent. Well, no, he never published another book. There was one published posthumously, wasn't there? Oh, uh, it, it might have been, but it wasn't like a, a coherent... It was just blabbering. I thought there was another book after this one, and then a posthumous one. Like, he tried to do the same thing again with a different crime. There's a novel published posthumously that he'd, he'd written in, like, the 40s. Yeah. So he didn't write it after In Cold Blood. And yeah, there was his un unfinished novel, Answered Prayers. He wrote In Cold Blood in 1965. Answered Prayers came out. 
Yeah. But it wasn't finished. No. But I like that the final shot of this film um, was the first page and he just written answered prayers on a piece of paper and it just moves on. So he's attempting to write something else at the end of the film. The coda from um, Capote is for that novel answered prayers. He had either the epilogue or like the opening page was a quote and it's from... I'm not sure who, the, who it is, St. Teresa of Avila, okay. saint. And the line was, there are more tears shed over answered prayers than over unanswered prayers. And so I guess that's kind it's of... It's a good imp- quote, though. Yeah, I guess implied as a reference to, at some point, he might have been ultimately praying for the execution to happen, despite how much pain he knew it would ultimately cause him just to have some sort of resolution. Yeah. Because there's nothing worse than ambiguity. True. We will suffer the most acute pain as a result of certainty rather than the the dull grind of uncertainty. I think pain of certainty is a lot shorter than pain of uncertainty because pain of uncertainty is a worry that just grates on you for a long time. I guess a pain of certainty you feel like you know the limits of. Yeah. Whereas the pain of ambiguity is that you can't ever get a sense of its scope or to what proportion it might ultimately grow. Deep. This is fun, isn't it? This show. Is yeah, this, it's real great. Is this fun? You know what's going to be fun? It's another heavy one. <laughs> but yeah. Next week's going to be pretty fun. Next week's going to be fun. <laughs> hey. After this. <laughs> doing James right. Bond. Where are we going to put we this in the list? doing James Bond. <sighs> Where are we putting this in the list? Okay. Well, as people may or may not know, we're not scoring these films out of 10 or anything we're creating an overall ranking of all daniel craig's films from best to worst yes this is the 27th daniel craig thing that we are ranking <laughs> um shall i start us off around the middle yeah figure okay. this out so um sylvia i think it's better than sylvia yeah, it's better than Sylvia. Elizabeth? Your thoughts? It's not a... Well, we, Elizabeth is the problem child of this whole ranking where it's no, obviously... It's a, it's, a, it's a good movie, but it's not great Craig. Elizabeth's a better movie, but not as good Craig. This is pretty good Craig. Yeah. I want to go above Elizabeth, I think. Okay. Fateless. <laughs> now it gets confusing. Chris, that's really good. He's in it for Everything, five seconds. but... Oh, it's hard. I mean, it's weird. Like, I've kind of torn this movie to shreds for the last hour and a half, but it's not that bad, ultimately, like, in the world well, like, of movies. technically, it's made quite well. And Sandra Bullock really lifts it a long she way. She totally does. And, like, like nothing is everything. Nothing in it is abjectly bad. It's just it could have been better. And it's hard seeing it next to Capote. I don't want to put it above Fayless, but what's above Fayless? The jacket. This is definitely better than the jacket. You you are a strong jacket naysayer. Yeah, I am. I'm still unsure why the jacket is. I see, I would still I would prefer Daniel Craig in the jacket to Daniel Craig in this. Well then let's well Because Daniel Craig in the jacket gives us more gears. He does give us a couple more gears. And more complexity for less time though. Well, yeah. do you think this is better than Fateless? Um, in a way, obviously not. But in the Daniel Craig ranking, 
Yeah. It's probably got to go above it. Okay. Well, let's put it between Fateless and the Jacket. But below the jacket. Position number six. Uh, that'll, that'll be number nine. We've ranked so many films. Yeah. Sorry. Cool. So many things. Let's not. Yeah. So many films and a couple of TV shows. Let's not drag it out. We don't have to. We know where things go. We already In... know what number one will be next week. From us. What's the top of the list right now? Just so listeners can know. Uh, so I'll give you our top five. In fifth position, Some Voices. Oh, nice. Layer Cake. Enduring Love. Weirdly, that survived for so long <laughs> near the top of the <laughs> rankings. And then top two, obviously, Road of Edition and Munich. Nice. Oddly enough, the two Spielbergs are at the top of the list. <laughs> Quite understandably. Yeah. All right. We did it. This is a good time. Yeah, we talked about that. This is a good time we did. And we are quite soon going to talk about something amazing. So, Join us next week when we will be discussing Daniel Craig's first Bond movie. And also, hopefully... His foray into Bond. And hopefully, if we have the time, also watching the original Casino Royale that has Woody Allen in it. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! I'm not sure if I'll release that on the general feed or just put that up on uh, Patreon, but apparently that movie is fucking insane and <laughs> really bad. So I'm looking forward to it. I'm pretty sure there's a UFO at some point. It's going to be great. That's some Bond material right there. Yeah, yeah. That's that's deep in the groove. So um, look out for that. I think we said it all up top about social media and whatnot. We did indeed. Um, I don't think I said my stuff. You can find me on Twitter at s underscore Brookfield. If uh, you if you want some, if you're into like sort of like public health related stuff, that's an academia. That's most of it. Um, You've been getting that TikTok out there yet? Uh, I am not TikToking. Okay. I'm enjoying observing some TikToks, mostly animal video related, but completely um, understandable. Uh, but but no. We should do that for the bloody song. Anyway, uh, Instagram, Samuel Brookfield, mostly hiking stuff. Oh, really? Cool. There's many aspects to me. I contain multitudes. You're on Instagram at Isaac Tips 2 as 2 bs It's mostly nothing. Yeah. There are pictures of my cat. Yeah. And my artworks. Should put a fo- should put up a photo of that bed you made. I should. I did. I did build a bed recently. Yeah. Then all our fans could see where you sleep. That's a little weird, though, isn't it? Do it. Okay, no. Do it. I shan't. All right, just send the photo to me. No. What? No, go on. Okay, can I just borrow your phone? No. Give, give us your phone a second. Give us your... Can I just, no. I just want to do something. Thanks, Ryan I Sim, for our artwork just un- and the vivisectors for the music. They're un- Russian. Just unlock it and hand it. Okay. <laughs> oh, no fun sometimes. All right. Thanks so much, everybody. 